This is Season 2 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a podcast about Japanese sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam for new fans, old fans, and not-yet-fans, where we watch, analyze, and review all 40 years of the iconic anime in the order it was made. We research its influences, examine its themes, and discuss how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 293 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, David J. and Aran. If you'd like to support the podcast but can't subscribe, patronize, or otherwise spend money, another way to support us is to write a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Help other Gundam fans find us. They could probably use the entertainment right now. Before we begin, a brief update from New York City. We know the news about our hometown has been scary lately. Thank you to those of you who've reached out to check on us. We really appreciate it. It is a scary time, and of course, we're worried about the health and safety of our friends, relatives, neighbors, and fellow New Yorkers, especially those who are now worrying how to pay rent or pay for food and health care. But we are doing about as well as two people can do under the circumstances. We're healthy and comfortable at home, well-stocked up on food and snacks, and keeping busy with the podcast, video games, art projects, and attempts at a new at-home workout routine. Stay safe out there, and we'll keep you posted about how we're doing. This week, we are covering Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam Episode 38, Rekawa's Shadow. After the recap and our talkback, our research for this episode covers the DJ and giraffes. But first, let's tune in to TNN. out there. Can anyone hear me? This is Travelin' Tom Thompson, reporting live from somewhere. Uh, somewhere in the desert between the Titans, Travel Group Kilimanjaro Nature Preserve and Ski Lodge, and the Hotel Dakar Prince. This week, I'm staying in a dilapidated shack, the first building I've seen since escaping the Ayuk bombing at the Hyman Hotel. If you're bored... <clears throat> if you're bored of the same old luxury safaris, traveling by mobile suit, drinking fine wine at every meal, and sleeping in a bed with intact mosquito netting, then you have got to try the exclusive roughing it package here in the wilderness. After the first few hours of hiking, I felt more in touch with nature than I ever have. And let me tell you, it's awful. Those luxuries are nice. It's hot out here, and my feet hurt. 
These limited edition giraffe skin boots from Bon Boni were not made for walking. I miss air conditioning, and I haven't been able to bathe since my camera crew caught me using our canteens to take a shower. But you don't have to take my word for it. Come here and see for yourself. And rescue me while you're at it. Please? Anyone? Is anyone listening? How are my ratings? <sighs> I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. The last few droplets of water in my canteen, this Anaheim Electronics emergency hand-cranked radio, and special thanks to my sole source of companionship and sustenance these last few days, the king-sized Toblerone I liberated from the hotel mini-fridge. Thank you, Lieutenant Junior Grade Toby. I swear to treasure your memory long after you're gone. But no thanks to my treacherous camera crew, who abandoned me to fend for myself at the first sign of... Oh no. It's the giraffes. They know I'm here. They know what I've done. They can smell my sins. And they won't let me escape. They've been following me since Kilimanjaro. I'm not safe here. I'm not safe anywhere. I have to go. If I can just get to Dakar and meet up with the TNN film crew there to record the Federation Assembly meeting, I can- Lieutenant Thompson! Lieutenant Thompson, is that you? You're alive! Lieutenant Nina's daughter? Oh, I'm saved. I'm saved. You have to come get me. The giraffes are circling. The- Never mind. Of course we'll send someone to get you. We have a search and rescue team standing by. Just tell us your coordinates. Thank you. Thank you. I'm- I'm at 90 degrees. No, 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 no. And now the recap for Rekawa's Shadow. Jared continues his relentless pursuit of the Audumla, pleased to be out of Dakar and free to act as he sees fit. Titan's mobile suits come into view just as Hayato is preparing Shar and Camille to return to space. They rush to load the Zeta and Yakushiki, among other supplies, into the shuttle, while the rest of the Audumla's crew prepare to defend her. Beltorchka fires on the enemy mobile suits from a turret, and Amaro launches in Adija. In his Byrlant, Jared searches furiously for the Zeta, wondering why it hasn't emerged yet. Then he notices that the Audumla is gaining altitude, and he can see the shuttle affixed to the outside of the huge Garuda-class plane. The shuttle launches and Jared recklessly, suicidally chases after it, firing his guns at the shuttle before being caught and tossed in its trail and falling to the sea below. Oblivious to all this, Camille and Shar brace for the G-forces of the launch, and wait for the Argama to pick them up. Char begins to tell Camille about the first people who went to live in space. How they thought it was better to think of space as a promised land, full of opportunity, rather than hating the elites who sent them there. How once they had shaken off Earth's gravity, they developed a new sense and became new types. Camille now sees it as his responsibility to pursue that promise, and in doing so, keep four alive within himself. When they reach the pickup location, 
They can just make out the flash of laser fire in the distance. The Argama is under attack. Jettisoning as much as they can, they keep the shuttle headed toward the fight and prepare their mobile suits. It will take 15 minutes for them to get there. Down two mobile suits, the Argama is struggling with its defense. Normal suited and ready, Fa goes to the bridge to beg Bright to let her launch the Methus. She's trained, experienced, and they need all the help they can get. But Bright refuses to let her fight. It's not as though her death will end the war. Wanting to protect Fa and the ship, Shintang Kum take the opportunity to climb into the cockpit of the Methus themselves. We have to protect the Argama in place of Camille, they say. With a sigh of resignation, Bright sends Fa to punish the two children, and Fa understands that he will now let her join the fight. Their opponents are none other than the Alexandria and its complement of mobile suits. Yazan and the Hambrabis harry the Aeug forces, and on the bridge, Captain Gadi tries to suss out if his newest officer, the turncoat Reco Alonde, is a spy. She insists that she didn't desert Ayug for any ideological reason. She just selfishly followed her heart. One of the Ayug mobile suits is entangled in the Hambrabi's sea serpent weapons. Immobilized, the suit is quickly destroyed. Apoli is almost caught himself, but Fa arrives to cut him free. Still, they are outnumbered, and it isn't long before Fa is grappled by a Hambrabi, and the Methus so badly damaged that she is forced to bail out to avoid being killed in the ensuing explosion. Camille arrives just in time to catch her escape pod. The Mega Bazooka Launcher is sent out for Char, and he takes aim at the Alexandria itself. In that moment, a stunned Camille senses Rekoa, even though he's sure she's dead. And she, on the bridge of the Alexandria, senses what Char is about to do. She tells the captain to have the ship pull back immediately, and as a result, several mobile suits are destroyed, but the ship is untouched. Char cannot understand how he could have missed. Gadi orders a full retreat. Impressed that Rekoa just saved them all, he asks her again to explain why she left Ayug for the Titans. I was drawn to a strong man, she tells him. When another officer confronts her, it becomes clear that the strong man the one whose attention she would like to attract is Sirocco. On the Argama, Char learns that a bootleg copy of his speech was broadcast to all the colonies in space. Ayug and its members, not to mention regular space noids, are reinvigorated, eager to work toward a new vision for humanity. It was inevitable after a string of really strong episodes, we were going to get one that was there. It's meh. fine. It's meh. It's another one of those episodes where they spend a lot of time getting people from one place to another. So I'm not sure that I agree that it's meh because I think it raises a lot of interesting philosophical questions. It doesn't really try to answer them, <laughs> but it made me think a lot. And so I did not feel like this was a meh episode. But you wouldn't put it in the same hallowed category as the Day of Dakar or the two Kilimanjaro episodes. No. Okay. This is like a solid B, B plus episode for you. 
Yeah, solid B. All right. I can accept that. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't have to be unanimous. <laughs> I might rate it like a B minus, but I'll be generous. We do get to see Jared at his most evil villain, his most authoritarian, his most obsessed, his most suicidal, and regardless of the lives of others. His most evil, authoritarian, and suicidal so far. You mean he's not dead? Eh. <laughs> I wouldn't expect him to be dead. I no. think if Jared dies in Zeta, it's going to be much more dramatic than him just falling into the <laughs> sea. But his insistence that this is not Dakar and I will do what I want. He's so excited to not have any oversight and to be completely in charge. He's fighting the Aldumla, but really he wants the Zeta and the Hyakushiki and especially the Zeta. He's so frustrated when they don't come out. He chases after them when they take off in the shuttle. Also, the fact that he tells his crew, like, do whatever you can to stop the Audumla, even ram them. <laughs> and the crew are all like, he's crazy. He can't possibly have meant that. I'm sure he was, you know. It was just, it was just a metaphor. It's not literal. <laughs> he just means we should do anything we can <laughs> to stop them. Sure he does. <laughs> oh, he, he definitely wanted them to sacrifice themselves. It's funny how much this first half of the episode mirrors Camille's first return to space. The duel between the two Garuda-class planes. This time it's the Melord instead of the Sudori, but it's the same thing. The instruction to ram them if you have to. I was going to say, I had forgotten about the Sudori when we watched this episode, but... That's exactly what they did. Yeah. And down to like Camille launching. This time he's got a shuttle, but it's still got the shuttle booster on it. So he's using a shuttle booster to get back into space mm -hmm. while Amaro stays behind to fight off the enemies and defend the Adumla. It's the same structure yeah. being used again. And whenever that happens, we have to focus on what's different. If so many things are the same, what has changed? Amaro has changed. Beltorchka has changed. Or should I say, Belwarchika, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Am I right? That was very clever, actually. When you were thinking of it, did you remember that Chica means girl? I did. Okay, just checking. Wanted to make sure that wasn't accidental. <laughs> yeah, her previous aversion to violence has now turned into her like screaming, Fall! Fall! As she fires at enemy mobile suits. Char notes that he is back to the old Amaro Ray. I'm not sure he's entirely correct about that. I also think he feels different, but Char being somewhat myopic in his views, what he means is, oh, you're back to fighting. You are no longer an anxious mess who's not sure if he should be involved in this or not. You're back to the Amaro that I find so attractive. I mean, useful. And for all that it's a silly kind of throwaway line, the bit about, oh, Beltorchka thinks you're more handsome without the glasses, at least indicates to us there's no hard feelings from Beltorchka anymore either. She very much did not like Quattro Bagina, mm -hmm. but she's come around on Char Aznable. <laughs> well, I think Quattro Bagina would agree that Char Aznable is just a much more likable, uh, handsome, competent, born leader. <laughs> Char's behavior in that scene, well, in the whole episode, really, with all of these other characters, first of all, he's very uncomfortable when people praise him. He's almost bashful. And I think 
especially with Hayato and Bright, but also with Amuro, he is still playing the role. He is still putting on his idea of what a like a good leader does. You he, don't think any of that's authentic? I think some of it's authentic, but the bit where he puts his hand on Hayato's shoulder and he says, no, that's our job. Like, it all feels so unlike the way he normally behaves. There's some of that, although I read that scene as him trying to make sure that they don't saddle him with all of the responsibilities. Hmm. I feel as if several points in this episode, people are like, ah, you've done so much to inspire people. Oh, you've done so much for everyone. Like, <laughs> You're the one who changed me. This is your, you know, fight to win or lose. And he, to Hayato and to Bright, he's like, oh, no, we're in this together. <laughs> <laughs> Pleased to be working with you, chaps. Don't rely on me. I could disappear at any moment. Speaking of authentic Char moments, when Camille struggles to call him Char, and he's like, you can just call me Lieutenant Vegina. I thought that was nice. Yes. And was really him being nice, not him being manipulative or playing a role. Though it feels ironic because Camille is the one who insisted, you are Char Aznable now. <laughs> so I want to highlight that, actually. Because despite what you might think, given that Fa gets into a mobile suit, this episode was written by Endo. Endo of the two writers is the one who wrote all the bits about Fa will never pilot again, etc. Oh, we're going to have to come back to that. Oh, yeah, we are. We have a lot to talk about with that. Um, But Endo is also the one who wrote Camille on Kilimanjaro telling Quattro I will never call you Quattro again. You're Shar Hasnable now. So these are two different, maybe it's too much to call them side plots, but they're like running storylines happening in the background that only ever get referenced and advanced during the Endo written episodes. During the Suzuki written episodes, they're just not referenced. It's like they haven't happened at all. And those Suzuki episodes don't necessarily directly contradict the endo episodes but there are these particular elements that just are only in one or the other writer's work and then that conversation between camille and char in the shuttle where they have that who are you really what should i call you identity moment Mm -hmm. uh, is more of char behaving like the leader like the mentor because he's explaining to camille these sort of fundamental ideas about going to space and new typism and the conflict between the earthnoids and the space noids, which really goes back to Char's father, Zian Dekun. Like this is a lot of the Zian Dekun rhetoric about getting free of gravity, developing a new sense and becoming new types out in space. This conversation was really fascinating to me because it says a lot about Char, obviously, but I wonder if it is meant to reflect perhaps Japanese people who were sent to Brazil, for instance. Mm. Uh, That is a fascinating read. Because he makes this point that people basically decided that rather than spend a lot of energy being angry at the elites who sent them away, they decided to see space as a promised land, that, that they had this perspective on it that well, we cannot fight the elites, and then so we will make the best of the situation we're in, and that it did actually prove to be beneficial for a lot of people, and many people did have good lives out there. 
I also find it to be a a flawed read because the elites are a problem, <laughs> right? Like nobody should be forced out somewhere. And we know that in the world of Zeta, the elites still exercise power over the space noids in a very uh, non-representative way that the space noids don't have as much a hand in their own governance and the management of their own affairs as they should do. And so to say like, oh, we're just going to pretend the elites aren't a problem. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's great governance. <laughs> well, but for the space noids who were sent out into space, uh, psychologically, mm. it's about saying, we're going to look on the bright side we of this. We are going to make the best of a difficult situation. We couldn't do anything to prevent being forced out into space. Mm -hmm. We can't do anything now about the elites on Earth. Mm -hmm. So we're going to try to make a new life in the stars. Well, and that's a very healthy, very human response. And I think on the individual level, that's fine. I think for the representative of the opposition, that's maybe not fine. <laughs> like there should be a plan to combat that power imbalance if you're the one in charge of Ayug. But Quattro here is clearly not expressing his own feelings. He doesn't really think they should leave the power structure as it is now intact. So why is he telling Camille this? It feels very much like a foundational text. Yeah. <laughs> like... I'm teaching you the basics of the new type knowledge. Here is our history. That, I'm glad you said that because it just made me put something together, which is this connects directly to what he has just told Camille about flying the shuttle. Because Camille's like, I've flown shuttles before, Quattro, don't you remember? And Quattro tells him, yes, but you have to actually learn it. You have to learn it the proper way. You can't just figure it out as you go along. And so now he's He's giving Camille the textbook foundational literature on new typism, even though Camille himself is already like. That's quite skilled new type. Yeah, he's already doing it. He's already doing it in the self-taught kind of way. But Quattro wants him to learn it properly. And Camille's response is really interesting. Camille's response to starting to think about new typism in this more abstract way is unique. Of all the other new types we've met, none of them have ever looked at it and said, ah, my duty then is to become the most fully fledged new type that I can be. Shar and Amaro were all about how they could use their new abilities to accomplish their goals. For Amaro, it was protecting his friends. For Shar, it was revenge. Even Lala, who was the most advanced new type we met in First Gundam and who was sort of a guru to the others, she was doing that because people wanted her to. She wasn't self-directed. Camille makes it very explicit that he now considers it his responsibility to pursue that promise. And also that he sees it as essential to keeping four alive within himself. Part of the reason I like your interpretation of this as being a sort of stealth reference to the Japanese diaspora is that for many Japanese people who went abroad and settled in other countries, when they got away from Japan, when they got free of the gravity of the Japanese spirit and Japanese culture, they really did experience a pretty fundamental shift in their mindset that later when people of Japanese descent who had lived in other countries returned to Japan, I say returned here, but for many of them this was actually their first trip to Japan, having been born abroad, 
they found that the culture was uh, not receptive to their different attitudes. There were these government programs in Japan aimed at bringing people of Japanese descent to the Japanese home islands, and they were founded on this notion that if you had Japanese blood, if you were descended from Japanese people, then you were uh, inalienably Japanese, that the culture would just live inside you. Right, that somehow learning the language would be easy for you and you would automatically know the culture, like it would just be in you. Uh, and it turns out, actually, if you've lived in Brazil your whole life, probably, culturally, you are Brazilian. <laughs> With some, you know, preserved sort of diaspora culture brought in by your parents, but that's always going to be different than the experience of someone who was born and raised in Japan. Yeah. Well, and modern Japanese culture is not the Japanese culture that your grandparents left. Whatever they pass down to you is the reflection of a memory of a Japan that hasn't existed in 80 years or 90 years or 100 years. And to be fair, these are considerations that are true for all diaspora people. <laughs> you know, Japanese Americans, Chinese Americans, Vietnamese Americans. I'm naming mostly Asian countries, but it's equally applicable for the Middle East, for Africa, for South America. Anybody, any country, any time. Yeah, you know. And it's very possible that this is an intentional reference or perhaps one that's being made subconsciously because those government programs I was talking about aimed at bringing diaspora people to Japan were active around the time that Gundam and Zeta Gundam were made. And this conversation between Camille and Char about the nature of space, is it a promised land? Is it where humanity will transcend the nature of humanity itself and become something else? Then continues in a subtle way, as they're unloading all of the junk from the back of the shuttle in order to lighten the load as much as possible. Because it's here that Quattro tells Camille, be careful, don't use your verniers too much. They are your final lifeline, which just underscores how dangerous, how hostile the world in which they live is. They are always on the knife's edge of death in space. And we forget about it a lot. You know, we see people out in space without any kind of a lifeline. And we don't know how much energy a Vernier has. But clearly it's finite. Speaking of philosophy, shall we talk about Fa? There is so much to talk about. So much to unpack in this arc of Foz in this episode. But I would like to start with when she first goes to Bright, intending to get in the Methus and go out and join the fight, and he tells her, if your death will end this war, I'll permit you to go. Which is an interesting attitude to take <laughs> by someone who sends dozens of people into harm's way yeah. very frequently. Yeah. Why is Foz so special? Right, like, in a dark but true sort of way, one of the fundamentals of war is that lots of people die. And yet we still come to a winner somehow. And a lot of people might argue that, you know, lives lost in war are, are pointless. But in situations where you have to fight, you accept the risk that some people are going to die. And Bright does not have the luxury of not sending people out to die. That is 
the role he is in. He is the commander of the ship. The ship is in danger. But what I think happens here, and I, it suddenly makes sense to me that it's the writer you mentioned, Faz going out to fight is cast as the ultimate like sisterly or motherly act of protection. She's not doing it for any reason but to save those kids. Because it becomes very clear that they've seen that people need to fight and that if she doesn't go, they will. Uh, the kids, when they're sitting in the cockpit, mention they won't be mad if we fly as good as Camille, which is just such an indictment on the flexible morals and standards <laughs> of adults. Yeah. Like, oh, well, they say we kids shouldn't fight, but if we fight good, then they won't care. Right. That probably goes for Fa, too. If Fa went out there and fought as well as Camille does, they would never stand in the way of Fa going out and fighting. Now, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying Fa's a bad pilot. She did quite well. She did. She saved Apoli. And if you're planning to criticize Fa because the Methos got destroyed, the Methos gets destroyed a lot. Actually, <laughs> how is the Methos even there? It got completely destroyed a few episodes ago. Also, she took out two enemy mobile suits. When Camille catches her and starts to get on her case, she's the one who's like, get your head in the game. <laughs> There's still a fight going on around us. And she is not the only Ayuk pilot whose mobile suit gets destroyed. And no one is like, oh, Batch is such a bad pilot because he got killed. Well, that that would be a little, I mean, criticizing someone who's not there to stand up for themselves. <laughs> Don't speak ill of the dead, Tom. I'm not. I'm saying that it would be completely unfair to say that, and it's completely unfair to say that to Fa. It's pretty clear from the things Fa says both to herself and Camille when she sort of says, thank you, Bright, or thank you, Captain, after he tells her to go punish the kids um, because she understands this is tacit permission for her to go and fight. Right. It's like he's saving face. It's like having said that he'll never allow her to pilot again, he now can't order her to go out unless he can find some kind of excuse where he's not actually ordering her to go out. But she also says, I wanted to try once more and see if I can be a real pilot. It seems that the show is saying she can, but I'm not positive, <laughs> and the show is not always consistent. Yeah, my read on that was the show is actually saying she can't. Because of the reunion with the kids? Because of the reunion with the kids, because of the way she cries with frustration as she says that, as she says, I wanted to see if I mm. could do it, and because when she's saying that, uh, the Methodist has been destroyed and she's been ejected in a little escape pod. It's a shame because there's a, a visual that they do a couple of times in this episode where they split the frame into pieces and have like a different thing happening in each one. And the first time it's the three Hambrabi pilots going Heh, one after another <laughs> when they've caught Batch. But the second time is split screen, Fa's face on one side checking with Apoli. And the methods, one of the methods' guns on the other side firing away while she talks perfectly calmly to Apoli. And it's such a contrast. Because on the one hand, you have this calm conversation that Fa is having. And on the other hand, you have, you know, this ferocious battle still ongoing. And 
that sense of incongruousness actually made me feel my read on it was that it conveys Fa's competence, <laughs> that she's doing these two very incongruous things at the same time calmly. And why show us Fa being so competent and then, oh, but she's not cut out. <laughs> she's not actually cut out to be a pilot. Finally confirmed. Hmm. I have just had a thought. Go on. Fa's depiction in this episode functions principally to create a contrast between her and Rekoa. Both women, both pilots of the Methos, both of them go and get it blown up by Yazan. And here we see the two of them on opposite sides now, and Fa is depicted as, as you put it, the ultimate mother, sister, the ultimate self-sacrificing. I was going to say fundamentally selfless. Loyal, good friend. And when she talks about wanting to go out and see if she has what it takes to be a pilot, that's not from a place of egoism. It's not from a place of wanting to be the best, be the one who gets all the accolades, be at the center of everything. It's because, as the kids say in the beginning, somebody has to go out and fight. Fa has to fight. She wants to protect them. She wants to protect the crew. She wants to contribute to the cause in the sort of maximal way, the most that she can. And when Bright tells her, if your death could end the war, I would let you go out, Fa's response to me reads as, oh, well, yeah, if it could, I absolutely would. Rekua, on the other hand, self-identifies herself as selfish, as self-indulgent, as willful. She says, Wagamama. As following her own heart to the exclusion of any kind of ideals, morals, or ideology. And I want to pick apart the last scene that she has a little more, but she describes herself as being in it to attract the attention of a certain kind of man. A strong man. Like Yazan, but not Yazan. She means Sirocco. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what uh, her line is... Specifically, something like, it would be nice to attract the attention of that sort of man mm -hmm. in reference to Sirocco. Right. And when earlier on, Gotti is like, please just explain this in terms I can understand. Why are you here? It felt like he was embodying the audience at that moment. Zeta, can you just lay it out for me plain? <laughs> can you just say what you mean so that we can all understand you? And what Rekawa says, at her most understandable at her most plain i was drawn here by a strong man like yazan but we know i assume to your relief that she is not actually talking about yazan because she then walks right by him not even looking at him even when he turns to look at her and poor gadi again <laughs> being very identifiable for the audience it's like gosh ever since i teamed up with soroko nothing but weirdos <laughs> i feel for you gadi I want to talk a bit about the scene she has with Ramses because this is stuff that we've talked about before regarding the Titans, but I feel like it encapsulates a lot of who the Titans are <laughs> and what they value and their whole sort of code of behavior. Because he comes up to her and he does Kabedon, which anime people will know. For those of you who don't, Kabedon is when a man... Uh, 
he doesn't quite pin a woman to a wall, but he's like got one hand against the wall blocking her on one side and sort of looms and leans toward her. It is considered a flirtatious gesture. It's also very aggressive. I mean, you're literally blocking an escape route and looming over someone. It is a very aggressive behavior. It's kind of threatening. It's also flirtatious. He also, in the next moment, accuses her of being an assassin. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. And let's talk about that again in a second. It feels like an encapsulation of the Titans' whole deal because it's all about aggression. It's all about the exercise of power over other people. And there's this inherent sense that like, oh, well, if you are a violent assassin, maybe I'm okay with that. (laughs) Yeah. It's no skin off my back if you intend to assassinate my commander. Maybe there's something in that for me. And Reko's response to this is also very like aggressive. This is two, this is two goats butting heads. Reko is like standing up for herself and very much not intimidated at all. But they both play it so cool. You know, the Rekoa we've seen in other episodes might have slapped him. She doesn't. She doesn't hit him. She seems very calm, very aloof. He comments afterwards, oh, like that's a woman who would not be easily won over. That's, you know, it would be very hard to get such a woman to love you or be interested in you. I used my best, most aggressive flirting on her and she didn't even react. She gives this sense of being untouchable. Again, I'm reminded of the movie The Cactus Flower. (laughs) You know, that main character woman who we think Rekawa was being compared to, very aloof, very sort of above all these petty emotional concerns most of the time, but wanting underneath it all to have that emotional connection and that blossoming, but only with the right person and under the right circumstances. One part I wondered about is he says, oh, so you're that sort of woman. And this is just after she's mentioned wanting the attention of a man like Sirocco. So is he saying someone who's really in it because of romance? Is he saying someone who is going to use romance for personal advancement? Uh, What exactly is he saying there? So I have to bring in the language here. I did a little bit of research. Just a a teeny bit before we recorded. The word he says when he says, you're after Sirocco's life, is he says, inochi, which is, it means life. Mm -hmm. It means life force or life span. And so the implication, you're here to assassinate Sirocco, it works. It doesn't just mean life, though. It also, in a more archaic sense, and we know Tomino loves his archaisms, it can mean his destiny, his fate, his karma. You want to hitch yourself to Sirocco's star. You want to share in Sirocco's destiny. Or there was a practice of getting somebody's name and then Inochi tattooed on your arm to show your devotion to them as a lover. And this was a thing that uh, courtesans would often do. So maybe that's what he means when he says, oh, you're that sort of woman. Her response is clearly only about the assassination part of that, but that's super interesting. Well, and he says, you're after his life, and she says, no, but I might like to attract his attention. And then Ramses says, it's the same thing. So that really reinforces my theory that this is a bit of wordplay around the double meaning of life versus love here for Inochi. 
And now the research on the DJ and giraffes. It snuck up on us so steadily that you may not have noticed something very interesting about the mobile suits in Zeta Gundam. Zeta is full of unique mobile suits. Practically every important character gets one. In First Gundam, mobile suits were, by and large, mass-produced and interchangeable. Even the legendary Red Comet just used a succession of off-the-rack mobile suits, painted in his signature shade of salmon pink. The Gundam was unique in practice, but not actually in theory. If you remember, there were characters in the first couple of episodes talking about how a Gundam survived, and about destroying the spare Gundam parts for the other Gundams. The gun cannon and the gun tank are unique-ish, except that we do see others wrecked in the opening scene, and by the time the movies roll around, we see that the gun cannon has actually been mass-produced and adopted by the regular Federation forces. Over on the Xeon side, the only unique mobile suits are the Xeong and the Gyan, both introduced at the tail end of the show. But in Zeta, there is the eponymous Zeta Gundam itself, Shikwatro's Hyakushiki, Soroko's Masala, Fa's Methus, Jared's Byerlant, Four's Psycho Gundam, the Mark II, which did start out as a series of three mobile suits, but quickly and unceremoniously shrank down to just the one that has become Emma's personal machine, Yazan's Hambrabi, which isn't unique, but it is uniquely associated with his small team, and of course, Amuro's Dija. The mobile suit in Gundam serves the same function as a mask would in masked theater. It is a reflection of the character who wears it. A mask can express a character's nature through visual signifiers. It can also be used by a character or a performer to invoke traits that they do not possess, but desire to show all the same. A character's relationship with the mask can show us their relationship to the aspects that are contained within the mask. The mask can convey or deceive, or convey to the audience the act of deception. That's what Shaquatro's mask and his sunglasses have always been about. Entering the mobile suit, like putting on the mask, is a choice, but not really one that is made freely. And soon the mask, the character, the mobile suit, the pilot, they all become inextricable in our minds. Each of the characters I mentioned shows something of their personality in their mobile suit. The Zeta Gundam, capable of transforming into the high-speed wave rider form, reflects Camille's need to transform himself in order to survive the harsh Ayug discipline and the rigors of war, along with his own now-suppressed but always-present desire to fly away and leave it all behind. The Hyakushiki, shining golden Gundam-alike, shows us Quattro's need to stand out from the pack and his desire to emulate heroic legend Amuro Ray. The Masala? Soroko's outsized presence and his inhuman mindset. The Methus? Fa's paradoxic vulnerability and resilience. The Byerlant? The growing monstrosity within Jared. And so on. But what of Amuro's DJ? What does the hero of the One Year War's new mobile suit say about him. So, the DJ is a Karaba-built mobile suit. But Karaba down on Earth does not have the mobile suit design connections that Ayuk has in space. So this is less of a scratch build and more of a kit bash. <laughs> Which is to say, 
It's mostly been built by modifying and combining parts and ideas from other mobile suits. The lion's share of the Dija is based on the Rick Dias. Specifically, Lieutenant Apolli's Rick Dias left behind on Quattro's orders when Apolli returned to space. There's also elements lifted from the Nemo. The finishing touches, things like the armaments, those were suggested by Amuro himself, returning to his sometimes role as an engineer, and perhaps becoming his father a little bit. More like wah, wah, wah. Ultimately, the overall aesthetic of the design feels like a mishmash of Federation and Xeon design philosophies. Mostly, Xeon's Gelgoog crossed with the original Gundam, a fact that is fictionally attributed to former Xeon techs working on the DJ project. The legs have the bulk of a Xeon design, but they've got the hard edges of a Federation mobile suit. The skirt, that's pure Gelgoog, but the upper chest, with a red section in the middle that looks like but is not a hatch to enter a cockpit, <laughs> and yellow vents over the suit's pectorals, that's all pure Gundam. The arms are those of a Gelgoog. The shield covering the right shoulder is reminiscent of nothing so much as a Zaku. The head looks like it belongs on a Gelgoog, but again, it has some of that Federation angularity, and it's attached to a bright yellow collar piece that definitely belongs on the Gundam. The two large sail-like wings are perhaps the only purely, uniquely DJ elements of the whole thing. My favorite part. Aw, they're good wings, Nina. You don't have to tell me. This blending of the visual signifiers for Xeon and the Federation is a sign of the morally complex world that Amuro has now found himself in. What was once a stark and clear distinction between good and evil has become fluid as the lines of blurred and people, ideas, and the visual markers that signify them are constantly being realigned and redefined. In the previous episode, I pointed out the way the DJ and the Hyakushiki together speak to Amuro and Shaquatro's reversed roles. Amuro is now the ace pilot, and Quattro must step up to become the larger-than-life figurehead hero. It's no coincidence then that Amuro finds himself piloting a mobile suit that takes inspiration from two of Quattro's old suits, the Gelgoog and the Rick Dias, while Quattro pilots what was once an attempt at producing another Gundam. As Amuro says in this episode, you are the one who changed me. They are each of them trying to learn how to be by mimicking the other. Looking at the Deja, between its color, the shape of its head, the shape of its feet, and those wings, it looks like nothing so much as a sail-backed lizard. Something like the extinct Dimitrodon or Spinosaurus, or the crested chameleon or Philippine sail-finned lizard today. The similarity extends into the realm of function as well. It's widely theorized that the sail-backed lizards use those sails for thermoregulation. Taking advantage of the large surface area offered by the sail, they can either radiate excess body heat into the air, or they can turn it to face the sun to absorb extra heat. Likewise, those sail wings on the Deja are actually radiator fins, performing that precise function. For the most part, I don't think the Deja lizard connection says much about Amuro as a person, although... In his first appearance in Zeta, we did see him basking in the sun. But mostly, I don't think there's a connection here for one particular reason, and it's that the Deja 
was not designed for Amuro. <laughs> In the real world, the DJ was designed by Fujita Kazumi. Fujita at this point is a relative newcomer to anime mecha design, and most of his mecha design credits for Zeta Gundam are collaborations. He shares credit for the Nemo, the Hyakushiki, the Ashimar, the Hyzak, the Marasai, the Jim 2, the Mark 2, and some others that I can't mention yet. Technically, he also shares credit for the Zeta Gundam, but as I've mentioned before, it's a widely reported story that the Zeta design was picked after a three-way competition, and it was Fujita's design which won, with the losing designs going on to become the Hyakushiki and the Psycho Gundam. The handful of mobile suit designs for which Fujita gets sole credit, those tend to be among Zeta's most unique, and to my eye at least, delightful designs. The Masala, the Kaplant, the Gabflay, the Byerlant, and the Dija. I think I just listed Nina's favorites too. Pretty much, yeah. The story goes that Tomino was adamant that Amuro's new mobile suit should not look like the sort of suit that the audience would expect Amuro to pilot. He wanted the audience to be surprised. After all, we know Amuro as he was, and no matter how much he changes, we still can't help ourselves from looking for the legend in the man. And of course, that's also true for the characters around Amuro. Cats and Fra, Hayato, Quattro. Amuro has long felt crushed by the burdens of their expectations. In designing a new mobile suit for himself that is so utterly different from the legendary Gundam, Amuro is trying to reject those expectations as he reestablishes a sense of self. The overall Gelgugian impression of the machine declares, I'm not the Amuro you knew. But the lingering details from the Gundam add a quiet, and yet. So if the stories from the production are to be believed, Tomino accomplished this by giving Fujita some general instructions for the Dija, but without telling him that it was going to be Amuro's machine. As production stories go, I find this one pretty compelling, not just because it sounds exactly like something that Tomino would do, but also because there's some collateral evidence for it. During the production and the airing of Zeta, there was a manga version being drawn and published roughly contemporaneously by mecha designer and mangaka Kondo Kazuhisa. Kondo would get material like mecha designs from the team working on the anime, and then he would incorporate them into his manga. And because these two projects were being produced at the same time, neither one knew exactly what the other's final product would be, so naturally there are some small differences. And so, probably because of Tomino's deception, Kondo was given the design for the DJ, but not the secret of who its real pilot would be. Thus, his version of the DJ is an Axis Xeon machine piloted by Haman Karn and called the Chaika a word for seagull in Russian and other Slavic languages that I am assuredly butchering. The Chaika lacks the sail radiators, and instead has a pair of wing-shaped fins coming off the back of the head that evoke its avian namesake. I want to dwell on the difference in names between the two versions just a moment longer, because besides providing evidence of Tomino's trickery-based leadership style, 
It also suggests that the name Dija was added around when the design was assigned to Amuro. That probably means there's a connection between the name Dija and what the mobile suit is meant to say about Amuro. This is getting into some speculation now, but I believe that the Dija takes its name from the Jed, a symbol and artifact out of Egyptian mythology. It's no big secret that Zeta's naming scheme is the product of a deep and broad interest in the mythology and geography of the antique Mediterranean. Between the Titans, characters named Blutarch, Caesar, and Pharaoh, a ship called the Alexandria, a city called Amman, a mobile suit called Gaza, and a couple even more obvious ones that haven't shown up yet, Mediterranean myth and history is a pretty good place to start when you're looking for the inspiration behind a curious name. The Jed, which when written out in a Latin alphabet is spelled D-J-E-D, was a symbol used in Egyptian hieroglyphics both as the word for stability and as an ideogram to represent the more nebulous concept of order. In this context, it resembles a drawing of a pillar, wider at the base and the top, narrowing in the middle, and with four horizontal lines across the upper third of the symbol. In ancient Egyptian architecture, the jed was both an actual design used for functional pillars and a decorative symbolic motif. As with symbols for order and stability around the world, the jed was a powerful symbol of the righteous ruler. The jed was principally associated with the god Osiris, himself a former king of primeval Egypt and now ruler of the dead in the underworld. And that is because all of these jeds that we've been talking about are mere imitations of the singular, mythic, original jed. And here is how it came to be associated with Osiris. In Egypt, all was well. Nine gods born from the union of the earth god Geb and the sky goddess Nut walked the earth. Osiris, the eldest, was their leader a righteous king. His sister and wife, Isis, was a powerful magician. But his brother Set envied the power that Osiris wielded. Set had been a hero once, a lover and a fighter both, whose power could be invoked in love spells. Set led the armies of the dead each night to defend the sun against the light-destroying serpent Apophis. But as time passed, his nature darkened, he became a beast of violence and ambition, god of war, chaos, and storm. And when the chance presented itself, he turned his spear and club against his brother and became the first murderer. Killing Osiris, Set sealed his brother's body within a coffin and hurled that coffin into the Nile River. Because as everyone knows, throwing your problems into the Nile and letting them drift away is a surefire way to get rid of them forever. The coffin reached the sea and drifted until it arrived at the Phoenician city Byblos, located in what is today Lebanon, about 30 kilometers north of Beirut. There it became stuck in the roots of a tamarisk tree. The tree grew to enclose the coffin, and much time passed. Set ruled in Egypt. His reign was chaos and cruelty. Isis fled the kingdom, seeking her missing husband. 
sometimes with the aid of other gods and sometimes alone. And Osiris? He lay dead within his coffin, hidden in the tamarisk tree. Eventually, the tree was discovered by some local people, because it began to exude a sweet smell. Hearing of this, the earthly king reigning over Byblos ordered the tree cut down and fashioned into a pillar to be installed in his palace. So it was done, and that pillar, with Osiris in his coffin still hidden away within, was the Jed. Hearing rumors about this curious pillar, Isis traveled to Byblos and infiltrated the palace in disguise as a maid. She feared that if she revealed herself and her quest too soon, Set would move against her in all of his power. So she waited, and she observed, growing more and more certain that there was something amiss about the Jed. And while she waited, she did as gods traveling in disguise so often do. She took a liking to the young prince of Byblos and decided to give him a divine gift beyond mortal measure. But in the way of such things, the royal couple, being mortals, misunderstood the gift, and they thought that Isis was trying to harm their son. In the angry confusion that ensued, Isis threw off her disguise, and the king and queen, seeing her in all her godly glory and realizing that they had been treating a goddess like a maid, threw themselves at her feet in terrified supplication. They offered her anything, anything at all, if she would forgive them their effrontery. Cool, she said. I want the Jed. She brought the Jed back to Egypt. There she cracked it open and discovered Osiris's body within. With the help of old allies from better days, she prepared a powerful magic that would raise him from among the shades and restore his body to life. But while she was gathering the materials for her sorcery, Set broke into the temple where Osiris lay. Determined to prevent the resurrection of his brother, Set hacked the body into pieces, and he scattered them to the winds. Once more, Isis traveled the world, gathering up the pieces of her husband. In the end, she found all but one, for a fish had eaten his penis. What now? (laughs) Mythology is so weird and good. In secret now, she performed the ritual. She worked her dread sorceries, and life burned within Osiris again. But Set still ruled in Egypt, and Osiris, he was a just ruler and a good husband, but no warrior. So with a dose of magic to make up for what the fish ate, Isis conceived a son with Osiris. That son became falcon-headed Horus. And when he grew to the divine version of adulthood, Horus challenged his uncle Set. For eighty years, and with the court of all the gods looking on, they contended with each other, grappling, racing boats, fighting pitched battles accompanied by their followers, transforming into hippopotami for hippopotamus fights, and occasionally having sex with each other. Hippo fights! Hippo fights! At last, by a clever trick, Horus overthrew Set. He succeeded to the kingship of the living, and his father Osiris descended into the underworld to reign as king of the dead. The Jed, which had sheltered Osiris while he lay dead, became a symbol of resurrection. It is sometimes called the spine of Osiris, and just as a human's spine allows them to stand up and walk upright, the spine of Osiris allows the soul of the deceased to rise up from the earthly body and walk in the eternal realm. The Jed is also, like the dwarf Suthri, 
from whom the Titan's Sudori aircraft took its name, a pillar that holds up the sky. So what does this have to do with Amuro and the Dija? The Dija is a symbol of Amuro's resurrection. Shar says that Amuro has returned to the way he used to be. Beltorchka has called the seven years that he spent hiding out in Cheyenne his time asleep. He has been like the dead, and now, through the Dija, he is restored to some semblance of his self. But like Osiris passing through the Jed, Amuro can never be wholly restored, and it is also time for him to take on a new role. Osiris descended into the underworld. Amuro must remain on Earth while his successors return to space, to do what he no longer can. Now, some of our listeners, after hearing about how the Jed enclosed Osiris's coffin, might be thinking about one peculiar secret about the Dija's design. I do have to address this, but unfortunately, I am going to be disappointing you. If you investigate a model of the Dija, whether gunpla or pre-assembled figure, you will discover that the lizard-like Gelgugian face with mono-eye and all can be removed, revealing beneath it the two eyes of a Gundam-type mobile suit. Some models even include the face of a Gundam-type lurking under the Dijas. This is very cool. It really emphasizes the way Amuro is concealed within the Dija, and it would go a long way toward proving my theory about the Jed. If it had not been invented in the mid-2000s by manga <laughs> artist Kotobuki Tsukasa for his side story manga, Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, Day After Tomorrow, Kai Shiden's Report. After quite a bit of research and reviewing the close-ups on the Deej's face in these episodes, I have found no evidence at all to suggest that this hidden Gundam face design goes any further back than that. And that's fine, I guess. Maybe it all would have been a bit too on-the-nose for Zeta. There was a special recurring appearance in two of Zeta's recent episodes, giraffes. This stood out because, unlike some previous episodes that have included animals, it wasn't part of a larger scene of a variety of different animals, or done in a showy, set-piece kind of way like the butterflies in First Gundam. In the first of these two episodes, the only other animal that we see is a vulture. In the second, there are no other animals. I wondered at the time if the animators were particularly into giraffes. But listener Susan G. pointed out that historically, giraffes have been associated with the Kirin, a mythical creature from the mythologies of East Asia and some parts of Southeast Asia. The question is, how did that happen? Their habitat includes wide swaths of Africa, including the area these episodes take place in. But outside of the fossil record, there are no giraffes native to Asia. As it happens, live giraffes were first brought to China from Africa in the 15th century, during the Ming Dynasty. The emperor at that time, Yongle, is most famous for beginning construction of the Forbidden City. However, he also funded exploration and trade expeditions, one of which involved the largest wooden ships ever constructed, and one of which made it all the way to the Cape of Good Hope. And one arrived in Bengal and met with representatives from Malindi, now part of Kenya. They brought two giraffes with them as tribute and gave one to the Chinese expedition. Another source gives the origin of the first giraffes in China as another of these expeditions, one that landed in Somalia, and brought back two giraffes. 
but whichever it was, Emperor Yongle kept a menagerie and frequently received exotic animals as tribute, including bears, ostriches, elephants, parrots, and peacocks. But of all the animals he received, the giraffe is the one that he asked the court painter to paint. There was an additional something special about the giraffes. They were presented to the emperor as Kirin. Kirin are mythological creatures. The first written reference to one is from the 5th century BCE. Descriptions vary between time periods and cultures, and range somewhere between a dragon and a deer. But all of the descriptions seem to include horns, one or two, covered in skin or flesh, four legs, and hooves. Some variations include scales, whiskers, oxen-like tails. Their voice is said to sound like tinkling bells, chimes, or the wind. They are said to know by looking at someone if they are good or bad, guilty or innocent, and to punish the wicked and fiercely protect the good. Exceptionally peaceful creatures, they eat no meat, and in some depictions will not even tread on the grass since they do not want to harm it. They walk on water or on clouds instead. Sometimes they are wreathed in flames or brightly colored, and they live a thousand or more years. They symbolize luck, prosperity, fertility, protection, success, and longevity, and are among the most powerful mythical animals. In some mythologies, they are exceeded only by the dragon and the phoenix, but in Japanese mythology, the Kirin is the most powerful. They are also thought to appear in the homes of benevolent and wise leaders. There are legends that the Kirin appeared in the palace gardens of the Emperor Yao and the legendary Yellow Emperor, and that the appearance of a Kirin presaged the birth of Confucius. Thus, presenting the emperor with a Kirin was a way to flatter him. And while the emperor almost certainly didn't believe this was a Kirin, <laughs> many aspects of the description don't fit, even if he did believe that mythical creatures were real. It certainly made for a nice story. It seems he downplayed the arrival of the Kirin, but did not squash the rumors entirely. And so what started as an expediency influenced art for hundreds of years. While Japanese depictions of Kirin date back to the 8th century, depictions of giraffes and of Kirin influenced by the appearance of giraffes date from the late 18th century. These depictions made their way to Japan through political and trade links between Japan and China. The first real giraffe in Japan was a stuffed one displayed at the Tokyo National Museum in 1877, and the first live giraffe arrived in Japan in 1907. The Japanese word for giraffe is Kirin. And this is also true in Korean. The word Kirin for the mythical creature and the word for giraffe are the same. Is it possible that the giraffes in these episodes are being used symbolically? Are they a reference to Kirin and to what Kirin represent or portend? Hmm. Basically, are they meant to presage what happens in the following episodes, the emergence of Shar as a leader? Hard to think of Shar as benevolent, but, uh... <laughs> yeah, hmm. I don't know that they put that much thought into it. That's pretty deep. But also, they couldn't very well put mythical creatures in Gundam. That's really not Gundam's style. <laughs> right. Certainly, the choice of the giraffe is distinct. We can think of other reasons they might have chosen to use the giraffe. It might have been a particularly familiar African creature. It might have just been fun to draw. But they didn't draw the other fun African creatures, right? It is just, just giraffes. the giraffes. <laughs> and that one vulture. We also know punning is quite 
popular in Japanese. And so the fact that Kirin means giraffe and means this mythological creature that's very symbolic Mm -hmm. makes it more likely that that's a deliberate choice. Yeah, especially if we view the Kilimanjaro episodes and the Day of Dakar as one coherent storyline, which really makes sense. The descent to Earth, the events on Earth, and the return from it all fit together into one contained arc, especially because it all happens within Africa. And viewed thusly, it really does work to establish the presence of the giraffes to foreshadow the arrival of this new leader for essentially all space noids. One side note about giraffes. Despite the fact that giraffes were long thought to be more or less silent creatures, one of my older sources says that they are basically silent, the giraffe sounds in the TNN are real. Yeah, in the mid-2010s, some biologists working with giraffes discovered that Giraffes produce a low-frequency, humming kind of noise at night. And, as a heads up, all of my sources for this piece include artistic depictions of giraffes, Kirin, or giraffe Kirin. So (laughs) be sure to check out the show notes. Next time on episode 2.40, No Rest for the Wicked. We cover Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam episode 39 and Telling on Yourself, Abawaku 2, Space Switzerland, Lala Reference number 23, A Mystery Wrapped in an Enigma, The Floaty Chairs Meeting Chamber, The Only Thing to Dislike About Sirocco. Livestock and Recreation. Fa likes what she hears. And swans in a lake? That can't be good. You will see the tears of time. Remember to do all of the podcast things. Subscribe and review Mobile Suit Breakdown wherever you get your podcasts. Then pledge your undying devotion to Mobile Suit Breakdown on Patreon, where you can find great bonus content, get access to the MSB Discord, get exclusive MSB merchandise, and, you know, support the podcast. You can also follow at Gundam Podcast on Twitter and Instagram, and like us at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast for all kinds of extra content. And you should always check out our website, GundamPodcast.com, for all of our episodes, show notes, watch list, wish list, some other lists, and more. Plus, you can always email your questions, comments, and complaints to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. Or share your wrong Gundam opinion with us in a socially responsible way during this current pandemic by standing in the middle of your home and shouting, Quattro is the compassionate, selfless leader that Space Noids have been waiting for. It's unlikely that we'll hear you, but eh, give it a shot. Nice. <laughs> the intro song is Wasp by Misha Dioxin, and the closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links and more in the show notes. And thank you for listening. I can hear the radiator. We probably can't record right now anyway. Can you hear it? 
when I feel like I'm hearing it in the yeah, headset, yeah. not yeah. Yep. Um. Boo. But we can still talk about it. Yeah, and. Uh, oh, and um, Gadi feels a little like an audience insert here, and I want to talk mm. about that. Mm-hmm. When he's spinning the hat. Yeah. Well, and just like when he tells Rekwa. Can you explain it to me in a way that I will understand? <laughs> like, talk uh-huh. to me like I'm a child. Walk me through it. Yep, yep. And then afterwards, he's like, God, ever since I teamed up with Sirocco, it's oh. no, no, nothing but weirdos. <laughs> like, You could always reach out to Iraj, see if he wants to contribute or anything like that. Yeah. How much work he can do if they can't go into the lab? Right. I don't know what he's what he's up to right now. The sooner we record, the sooner I can play Animal Crossing. <laughs> All right, let's get in. Let's we're gonna speed run this one. What a good episode. The end. Eh. Was it? <laughs> Put the pen down. <laughs> But I want to fidget. <laughs> fidget Make with... Make it with little clicks. Fidget with the nice soft okay. taro. I'll, I'll fidget with the soft taro. Whoops. Almost like that, but not actually like that. I just get headaches so often, it's hard for me to acknowledge that, like, ah, being in pain all day counts as being ill. <laughs> <laughs> sounding like I've been in the desert for a week, but not having my voice sound awful for the Mm -hmm. listeners. It'll be a challenge. I'm trying to think. Sort of like low and breathy. Like you're scared that the giraffes will find you. (sighs) (laughs) Because then you could keep it low. It doesn't sort of like come up in that like frightened way. Yeah. But it's still like, I'm hiding. Oh God. (laughs) But I have to be able to, I have to start higher than that so I can mm, shift yeah. into that when I become aware that giraffes are after right. me. Yeah. They're coming. They're coming. They're coming. <laughs> <laughs> giraffes intensify. <laughs> <laughs> Wait until you hear the sound that giraffes make at night. <laughs> Did you find some audio? Yeah. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I love it. How much of this conversation do we need to redo? (laughs) That was far more in-depth and detailed than I expected. (laughs)